If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 14. As you're turning there, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever been troubled? Has your world ever been threatened? Or worse, has your world ever been completely shattered? Have you yet come to the place in your life where you found yourself asking, God, what am I going to do? Have you come to the place where you found yourself asking God that if if he would only show you what he's up to, if he would only give you some insight into what he's doing, that Lord, if if you just show me what you're doing, it'll be enough. Maybe you're in that place this morning. My great-grandmother, she died when she was 94 years old. Very long life, and for the most part, very healthy life. Uh, still lived at home, did all everything by herself for a long time. Uh, but before she died, we would, we would talk a lot, and I really, I tried to take advantage of that, uh, especially in those later years. But uh, she, she would, become very solemn at times and she would look at me and she would she would say you're going to go through some things son it was a little ominous She'd tell me this a little sobering wow grandma calm down it was ominous but it was the wisdom of a woman who had been alive for nearly a century nearly a hundred years of life, of someone who had lived through the Great Depression, had lived through a world war, had lived through tumultuous days, civil unrest in her own days when she was a young woman in her country. Someone who'd lived through the loss of nearly everyone she had ever known or loved after nearly a century of life. And she was conveying to me that there will be moments in life when our world is threatened, when we're troubled, when our world is shattered even, where we'll be deeply troubled. And she would always always tell me though of the faithfulness of the Lord to provide and to comfort during those times. And as we come to John chapter 14, we need to understand that really just just the number, the chapter is breaking in an odd space and that everything we're about to consider in chapter 14 actually begins in chapter 13. And we need to be reminded that we're no longer in the last days of Jesus' life here. 
Rather, we're in the last hours of Christ's life. In chapter 12, Jesus, he had said that his hour had come. And in chapter 13, Jesus is again, he's, he's telling his disciples that his hour had come and that he would depart out of the world to the Father. And, and after he washes his feet and he's teaching them, he, he tells them in verse 21 of chapter 13, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then in verse 33 of chapter 13, Jesus, he says again that he's only going to be with them a little longer and that he's leaving. And then where he's going, they can't come. Not only that, but when Peter questions him, saying, Lord, Lord, where are you going? And Peter says he's ready to lay down his life for Christ. The Lord says Peter is going to deny him that night before the night is even over. In, in trying to describe the situation and what's, what's happening here, two, two or three of the commentaries I looked at, speaking just of the circumstances, now facing the disciples, the circumstances that have come upon them, they, they, more than one, two or three commentaries, they use the word shattering, that in a very short space, the world of his disciples was being shattered, that, that within hours, Jesus will have been arrested, his disciples will be scattered. He would be crucified. Their world would be completely turned upside down. And they're getting a taste of that right now when he says, one of you will betray me. I'm leaving you. Peter, even you, most zealous Peter, even you, before the night is even over, are going to deny me. The disciples are about to go through some things. And so to his friends, his friends, to these men who in verse 33 of chapter 13, he, he said, and Matt pointed this out last week, he called them little children. He loved these men who are now being broken and soon to be shattered. He speaks these words. So look with me there in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not where, know where you're going, and how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, 
Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Would you bow again with me in prayer? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for these words to your friends. In the moment when their hearts were troubled, you spoke comfort. You spoke promise. Oh, Lord, there's no one like you. Lord, would you take your word? Would you take the comfort that Jesus holds out to his people? And by your spirit, would you apply it to our hearts? We ask that you would make Jesus great this morning, Lord, and that that would be our comfort. And we ask it in his name. Amen. In our text this morning to his friends who are troubled, Jesus speaks words of comfort into the ears and hearts of his disciples. As he does this in our text this morning, I want to highlight the three primary ways, as best I can tell, from the text that Jesus speaks comfort to his disciples. And so we'll divide the text into three sections and we'll take them each one at a time. I'm not going to list everything here, but we'll just begin in verses one to six. It's our first section. And so Jesus begins, he speaks to his troubled friends and he says, do not let your heart be troubled. It's worth noting that in chapter 12 and verse 27, that Jesus himself, he had said, now my soul has become troubled. And when Jesus mentions his own soul being troubled, it's it's with the knowledge that he had come to his final hour. He's about to go to the cross. He's soon to endure the wrath of God. Everything we talked about in Grow this morning He's about to become a substitute in the place of his people so that through his death we would be reconciled to God. 
when we place our faith and hope in Christ. But he's going to experience separation from his Father. And in this hour, when, when he himself is troubled, he's speaking words of comfort to his friends. He's seeking to comfort them in their trouble, and he does so with words of promise and of future hope. He tells them, believe in God, and also, he says, believe in me. And so he places himself in the same category, the same position, on the same footing, equal footing, as, as one equally worthy of our belief and trust as much as God the Father. He holds himself out to the disciples here as, as one who is equal with the Father, equally worthy as an object in whom we would place our trust and our hope and our faith. Believe in me, he says. But he goes on to unfold these beautiful promises as a means of comfort and as a means of adding substance so that when he says, don't let your heart be troubled, and he calls him to faith in himself, there's something beneath the call. There's, there's a reason. He's going to tell them why you ought not to be troubled. There's solid ground beneath his words and his call to faith. As he holds out these promises in the following verses, it's important to understand that God's people are never standing on nothing. God's people don't stand on thin air. And that though we walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us, we don't step out in blind faith as though we have nothing to stand on. Even those who are unable to walk by sight have something firm beneath them upon which to walk. And God's people always stand firmly and securely upon the solid ground of God's promises. We stand upon what God has told us about who he is and what he will do. And that's central to what Christ is doing in our text this morning. He's going to unfold words of comfort rooted in promise to his people about who he is and what he will do. And he means it to be solid ground for the disciples to stand on as their world is being shaken and as their hearts are troubled. And so listen to how simply and tenderly, how gently Jesus speaks. Listen to this, listen to this. How he starts with, with, with telling, telling us. He says, my father has a house, home, and in this house are many dwelling places, lots of room, there's lots of space in God's house. They don't have to worry that when they show up, there's gonna be a shortage of rooms, no shortage of space. 
And again, listen to these words so tenderly. If it were not so, I would have told you. If any of this were untrue, if there was any danger of disappointment, if any other future lay in store for you, I would have told you. He wants them to be comforted by the truth. But my father has a house and there's good news. Jesus says, I'm going there and I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going away, but I'm going away to do something. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus, having come into the world to his people who he loved so dearly, having become the object of their love and affection, Jesus, he wouldn't leave them unless it were for a great purpose. His whole coming into the world and to the disciples and calling them out of darkness and calling them to himself was with great purpose. And now his leaving is with equally great purpose. He's going to prepare a place for them. And not, not only that, but Jesus says, if I go and do this, if I go and prepare a place for you, listen to this, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. When you think about what the disciples wanted more than anything, like in verse 36 of chapter 13, Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Verse 37, he wants to go with Jesus right now. Jesus, he tells them a little later, he says, you'll seek me. Here in verse five of chapter 14, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. As the disciples, they're, they're troubled. What they want more than anything is to be with Jesus. Lord, don't, don't go. We want to be with you. They want him to stay with them, and Jesus knows that, and so do these hearts that long to be with Jesus. He promises, I will come back to get you and take you to be with me in my Father's house. You know, the worst possible thought a Christian can imagine is to be separated from the Lord Jesus. It's not torment in hell. It's not being there. It's being separated from the friend of sinners. It would be to not be able to be with him. If all the world was to gather into the Father's house, but Christ was not there, it would be the most empty, lonely, abhorrent place there is. It would be a place devoid of joy and comfort. The thing that Jesus means to be a comfort to the disciples is that, is that he told them, I'm coming back to get you. And when that happens, I'm taking you to be with me. This is good news. He doesn't tell them anything about this place right now, nothing about his father's house other than the fact that there's enough room for everyone and that Jesus himself will be there and that is enough. This is good news for people who love Jesus and want to be with him. It's the promise that on the other side of a shattered world, there's a place for you with me. 
And he ends these opening words of encouragement by telling them in verse four that they know how to get there. As we continue through this chapter in coming sermons, we're gonna see that uh, between now and the time that Jesus is arrested, the disciples, they're gonna kinda continually express a degree of confusion. They're troubled and Christ speaks comfort to them and he's gonna go on to do that. But they don't quite understand a lot of the things that he's telling them. And there in verse five, we see something of the confusion. Thomas says, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? It's here that we come to one of the most loved verses in the Bible, no doubt, throughout church history, but another tender, beautiful, glorious, comfort-filled statement, and it's the answer to both where are you going and how do we get there, and it's in verse 6. Look there where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the destination, as Jesus, he'd already said, is his Father's house. It's in, into the presence of the Father. The, the destination is his presence. The way there is through Jesus himself. I am the way, he says. So when he says, you know the way, I'm telling you that to know me is to know the way. So when Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going, and how can we know the way? The answer is that, that Christ is going to usher his disciples where? Into the presence of God the Father. And the way that they get there is through faith in Christ himself. It's the, the same exclusive claim that he's held out to them from the beginning. He makes this absolute statement that there's no other way to God except through him. There's no other means of being reconciled to the living God and being able to enter into his presence safely except through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the way, and the way to him is through repentance and faith. And so this, this really, it sums up the entire reason for which Christ came to live and die and be raised. It's a, it's a summary of, of the, what has been the trajectory of redemptive history since Eden when because of our sin, man was exiled from God's presence with the promise that one day all of the effects of the curse, like David said in Grow this morning, all of the effects of the curse will be undone and that man would be ushered back into God's presence. That plan unfolds throughout the entire narrative of Scripture and it ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with that glorious, glorious reality where God's people, the redeemed of all the ages, are in God's presence. Man with God again, freed from sinning, never to be exiled from God's presence again. And Jesus says, the way there is through me. God's presence. My father's house, 
back to the garden. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, uh, he, he comments on these words where, where Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. He says they're not disconnected truth, uh, truths. He writes saying, Jesus is not saying I am A, the way, B, the truth, and C, the life. Rather, this statement is in an elliptical form so that Jesus was saying, I am the way because I am the truth and because I am the life. I am the way to the Father because I am the true manifestation or revelation of the Father. I am the way to the Father because I alone have the power of eternal life. Jesus says to his disciples here, you do in fact know the way, and it's me. It's me. I'm the way. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You're probably also catching that this is another, in fact, it's the sixth I am statement in John's gospel. And just like verse one, uh, where Jesus, he means to hold out uh, to his disciples his absolute deity, and his identity as God incarnate so that as such you can trust that when you believe in me, he says, just as you believe in the Father, that when you turn from your sin and when you place your faith in me, you have access, full access to God's truth, God's life, and safe, free entry into the Father's presence, into my Father's house. This is good news. And he means it to be comfort to his disciples. Now I want us to move on to our second section this morning, which is verses seven through 11. So in this section, Jesus, he begins by responding to a misunderstanding about the significance of his identity. But I think as Jesus, he clarifies his relationship to the Father, I think this also is meant as a means of comfort and encouragement to the disciples. So Thomas, he demonstrated in verse five that the disciples, they didn't understand exactly what Jesus had said about where he was going. But now beginning in verse seven, reveals that even until now, Jesus reveals that even until now, they also had not fully understood the significance of who he is. Look there in verse seven, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. He goes on, but from now on you know him and have seen him. And I think there's a little bit of a pattern there, or the same thing happens at least twice. But just as he said in verse four, you know the way. How do we know the way? Jesus' answer is me, it's me. It's the same thing here. You, you know the Father. Now, he tells them they know the way, the way. They're like, we don't know where you're going. It's, Jesus says, it's me. Same thing here. You know the Father now. You haven't understood before the full significance, but from now on, you know him and have seen him. It's me. Me. 
And again, much like in verse 5, there's, there's, a, there's a misunderstanding expressed by one of the disciples here. F- Philip, in verse 8, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. He thinks he'll get some, some clarity. The commentaries seem to agree with the idea that what Philip is asking for is something akin to an Old Testament-style theophany. Like, think back to, to Moses asking God, show me your glory. And Philip seems to think that if Christ will allow them to have that kind of grand sensory experience with the Father, if Jesus will show them the Father in the kind of way that Philip has probably heard and read about from God's Word throughout his life, he says, that'll be enough for us, Jesus. Essentially, what's happening is Jesus is holding himself out. He stands in front of the disciples explaining that in Jesus, they now know the Father. But then Philip asked for something else. You see the confusion here. There is nothing else. There is no other comfort. There is no other experience you could have with God that would surpass the clarity of the revelation of the Father In the Son, the only place to look in order to know and see the living God is the Jesus who is standing right in front of them. And maybe Jesus expresses a little bit of gentle exasperation because he asks in verse 9, he says, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do do you not believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? He finishes out verse 10 saying that the words that he's been saying, and he's not speaking them on his own initiative, not detached from the Father, but the Father abiding in him is the one doing the works. And then again in verse 11, the, the call, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Philip, you don't need an Old Testament style theophany. If God were to rend the heavens and come down in a, the Shekinah glory, resting on the temple, the man standing in front of you, this Jesus is enough. Now it's important to take note here and consider what Jesus is not saying. Briefly, Jesus is not saying that he is the Father. Okay, that's uh, the error of modalism. He's not saying he's the Father. He's not saying that the Father is the Son. Jesus is not saying that I am the Father, but I'm merely appearing in the mode of the Son at this present moment. There's no confusion of persons here All throughout the text, the distinction between the Father and the Son are upheld. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and yet what Jesus is saying is that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and the divine status as God, which is possessed by both Father and Son, is such that when you look at Jesus and when you know Jesus, you can say that you have come to know and see God the Father. Because knowing Jesus is what it means to know God. 
God the Father and God the Son, they share the same divine essence so that when you look at Jesus, you are seeing the fullness of deity in bodily form. John, he's told us this in chapter one of this gospel in verse 18. He he explains Christ's role in the Godhead, what Jesus does, one of the things that he's doing He says in verse 18 of chapter one, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You wanna know what Jesus is like or what God is like? Jesus says, here's the explanation. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, speaking of Christ, he's the radiance of his, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. The Apostle Paul, he he tells us in Colossians chapter one and verse 15 that Christ is the image of the invisible God. You see what Philip is asking for, what he thinks would be satisfactory, what he thinks will be enough for his soul, his heart, is actually something less significant and less substantial than the man standing right in front of him. He fails to realize the significance of the fact that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God in whom all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, the one who is the exact representation of God's nature, the one who is the image of the invisible God, who explains the Father to us, whose role in the Godhead is to make the invisible God visible is standing right in front of him. He says, don't you know me? Don't you recognize the Father? Don't you recognize deity in me? Don't you believe? Listen to my words. Look at the works. All that I am for you. Look at my life and ministry and behold your God and believe. And Philip, don't make the mistake of thinking that what you need to know about the Father is something other than the Jesus who is standing right in front of you. You have the wrong idea about what will be enough for you. I am enough, this is enough, Philip. The comfort being held out here is that in Jesus, you have everything you need to know and to be reconciled to God. You have everything in him. He is enough. So now I want us to pick up at verse 12. This is our third and final section. After Jesus, he gives them Again, the call in verse 11 to believe that he's in the Father and that the Father is in him. He goes on again to speak words I believe are meant to instill comfort into the hearts of his friends. Beginning in verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. He goes further in verse 13 in describing another promise that will hold true when he's gone. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do 
so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So I've said at the outset, I've said multiple times, I think one of the primary things Jesus is doing in these verses this morning is what he's going to continue to do through the next couple of chapters, but he's speaking words of comfort to his disciples. He offers them comfort initially by telling them he's going to prepare a place for them and that they'll be with him. He offers comfort as he explains that they now know God, that they have all the vision of Jesus that they need. And now he's offering comfort as he tells them, you'll have everything you need when I'm gone. You see that in those verses? They're gonna continue to live and minister and do works, greater works even, expanding the kingdom of Jesus. And they'll live under this glorious promise that whatever they ask in Jesus' name, he'll do for them. When I go, you'll still have everything you need. I'm still going to hear you. You can still ask. I'll still give it to you. Ask in my name because I will hear you. I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, are aware that promises like this, verses like this have been twisted abused, uh, made to to mean something um, that Jesus did not intend to mean as far as when it comes to asking things in his name. The idea of what it means to ask something in Jesus' name is often distorted. So again, let's take a moment to understand what Jesus is not saying. He's not writing a a blank check for his disciples to hit Jesus up like a vending machine when a need arises. But what does it mean? What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Because that's, that's the qualifier, right? I mean, he's not primarily telling them what they can't pray, but rather what they can. And the qualifier to the anything is that it's anything in his name. What does it mean to pray and ask something in Jesus' name? One commentator, he explained it this way. He said that to pray in someone's name is to pray in accordance with all that the name stands for. It's to pray in accord with the will and the person of Christ. It's to pray in a manner that is consistent with the character and the nature and the purposes of God. And Jesus, he tells us why he answers those kinds of prayer. And it specifically, he says, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So we're, we're talking about prayers aimed at the exaltation of Jesus that he will answer so that his father will receive glory. On the other side of that, to pray in our own name 
is to pray based upon our own merit for our own desires and for our own purposes. The call to pray in Jesus' name for his disciples and for us is a call to draw near to the throne of God, the throne and presence to which we now have access in Christ. It is a call to come and to align our hearts with the heart of God. It is a call to bring your heart into alignment with God's own, to love his loves, to pursue his desires, to embrace his joys, to treasure what he treasures, to make your prayers a means by which the Father is glorified in the Son. And it's a comfort to know that for those who love Jesus and who wish to honor him, they have his ear. He hears those prayers. He answers those prayers. Now, I mentioned earlier my, my great-grandmother, she'd spoken those words, you're going to go through some things, son. But I also mentioned that she was always quick to point to the Lord's provision in the midst of those things. Comfort. Christ's disciples are about to face the most earth shattering moments of their lives, and He comes to them speaking words of comfort. He comes with hope filled promises. He comes filled with the promise that they have a place with Him, the promise that He's enough, that they know God, the promise that they have his ear and that they have everything they'll need in order to follow him and be faithful to him and to glorify him. And brothers and sisters, God's people today, we today in this room have the same promises in front of us. And I don't know what you're facing this morning. I know what some of you are facing, but not all of you. Some of you are suffering in silence. Some of you are in that place where you're asking God, what am I going to do? And you don't know yet. Others of us perhaps today are simply recognizing that in our world, has been, as has been the case throughout all of history, there's much to trouble us. And even if we're not there yet, that wisdom of a woman who lived almost 100 years rings true. You're going to go through some things. But what I want to say to you is that we have the same promises in front of us. Christ holds out the same promises to his people today that he held out to his disciples then. He holds out the promise that on the other side of a shattered world, he's going to come for you. And he's going to take you to be where he is. And that Christian, the desire that you have to be set free from all remaining sin and to see the Lord face to face, that desire is going to be satisfied. He's coming to get you. The same promises for you that 
Jesus is enough and that everything he's told us about himself, everything that he's shown us of himself in the scriptures is enough and that looking at him shows us everything we need to know about God, what he's like, who he is, that gentle, tender, humble, do not let your heart be troubled. That is your God saying those words. To know Christ is to know the living God and in him we have full and complete access to the Father. That's a promise, access to the truth of God and to the life of God. And brothers and sisters, we have the promise that we have Christ's ear. Christ is gonna go on in this chapter to offer more comfort with the promise that he's gonna send the Holy Spirit to dwell with his people forever. He's, he's gonna go on to assure them in verse 18, he's not gonna leave them as orphans, but he's gonna come to them. And just as he means to comfort his disciples throughout this chapter, and just as Christians throughout the history of the church have gone to John 14 and received comfort, have been met with the tender comfort of Jesus to his people, he holds out the same comfort to you this morning. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That was Christ's call to his disciples, and that's the call of John's gospel to us this morning, to again look on Jesus and believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these beautiful, wonderful, immeasurably great promises. Would you grant your people, your people, Lord, especially who in this moment could describe their hearts as troubled. Grant us to believe on you, Lord to stand on the firm ground of your wonderful promises. And may be a comfort to your people, Lord. You're the God of all comfort. Thank you for being that God. Amen.